It's just so nice to see how God paints the landscape around us. Um, thank you for all those who donated this week. Um, over the last week, uh, the food has piled up in the back table. And uh, it's just a way that we as a church can bless the community around us. Uh, there's many people that are in need, and uh, this just helps provide for them. And please don't forget that while we do this at Thanksgiving and other times of the year, uh, the need goes on all year round. So if you want to know more about, I think it's called Connections, if I got it right. Where's Sandy? Did I say it right? Good. You can talk to Sandy down here. He'd be glad to share with you. He volunteers at the food bank a lot. I think you're there every Tuesday, am I right? Or most Tuesdays? Oh, more than, more than Tuesdays. Okay. So um, you can talk to Sandy. He'd be glad to speak with you. As I was preparing uh, for today and I was looking at our text in Matthew, I could not help but think of Corey Ten Boom. Some of you will know the name, a Dutch watchmaker who worked alongside her father. She's more famously known for hiding Jews during the Second World War. If you've ever had a chance to read her book, The Hiding Place, or possibly watch the movie, or even listen to Focus on the Family's radio theater on the production. I believe we have that in the library. June's nodding, so I'm correct on that. It's worth the time. The autobiography focuses in on the family uh, as World War II breaks out, and it focuses on uh, them helping Jews to both hide and to leave the country. They're helping them so they would not be rounded up by the occupying army of Hitler and then shipped off to concentration camps. It also follows, if you're familiar with the story, the family's arrest, and it follows them into concentration camps where many of her relatives, including her beloved sister Betsy, passed away, and it ends with her miraculous release from the camp. All of this while Corey was about 50 years old. I'm going to read a little bit from a 1972 interview. 1947, Corey returned to Germany to bring a message that, for, that God forgives. After speaking in a church in Munich, she spotted one of the guards from Ravensbrück concentration camp where she and her sister had been sent. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat was waiting for her at the back of the church near the exit door. Their first meeting came to mind, where the women were made to strip, walk by the guards, a walk of shame toward the showers and the delousing stations. As she neared, he thrust out his hand and exclaimed, Fine message, Fräulein! How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Corey recalls her thoughts. And I, who have spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remember him and that leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. The man said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there, 
No, he didn't remember me. But, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fourline. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day been forgiven, be, every day to be forgiven, could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you help us to push the crowded thoughts that so often evade our mind of the worries to come in the week ahead, of the joys and maybe sorrows and the pains from the week behind, that we may focus on your word and what you would have for us this morning. We thank you for your love, for your care, for your concern for us. Father, we just pray that as we delve into your word this morning, it might challenge our hearts and our lives to how we live each and every day. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Once again, we're going to take our seat on the side of a hill and listen to Jesus preach what we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. Now in the crowd there are the apostles, the twelve. There are also those who would call themselves disciples. There were lots of curious people there too. And a number of religious leaders who didn't like him. Okay, that's a little light. Let's face it, they downright hated him. The only reason that they were there was to guard their precious version of Judaism, as impure as it was, they wanted to know what was going on. We listen to Jesus, and he proclaims he was there not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And, and while much of the Mosaic law was fulfilled, well, the Mosaic law was fulfilled in Christ, the moral law, those principles and laws that stood before the Mosaic covenant, those principles and laws that were repeated in the New Testament, those principles that serve as a reflection of who God is, are still to be followed. Paul talks about this in a letter to Galatians. We've talked about it before, Galatians 6 2. We are now bound to the law of Christ. That Christ reveals to us in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And as he continued the sermon, in verse 20, he states this, just before our six illustrations that we've been looking at. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the religious leaders at that moment learned that they were outsiders. They were on the outside of the kingdom looking in, and that would have been a stark new revelation to them. This morning, we're going to look at the final of our six illustrations. In each illustration, Jesus reinterprets a commonly held misinterpretation of Scripture. 
So if you're not there already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through, or 43 through 48. Follow along as I read. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And if you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, to, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and said, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus begins with that familiar formula. We've seen it five times before. You have heard, but I say unto you. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this appears to be loosely based off of Leviticus 19, verse 18, where we read this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The confusion, though, comes is nowhere in the Old Testament does it talk about hating your enemies. It would appear that this is more of a populism belief, not something that was specifically taught by the religious leaders. We can find a little evidence in this in the Qumran community that was uh, around just shortly after Christ's death. And when they took their covenant in the Qumran uh, community, they were commanded to love those inside the community and hate those outside the community. The belief may, be, may have been very popular with laity as opposed to a teaching by the religious rabbis and leaders. Assuming that, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but no other group is mentioned, so that must mean it's okay to hate them. After all, loving my enemy is not specifically addressed in Scripture, is it? So I can, I can hate them. The same exi- issue exists in our world today. Uh, and unfortunately, the same issue is in our pews. We don't always know what Scripture says, and things get repeated. How many have heard this when a person dies? Heaven must have needed another angel. How many have heard that? Right? Okay? Right. It's a popular belief. There's a big problem. Scripture never indicates that anyone die, that when anyone dies, that they become an angel. It might sound nice to the person who's grieving, but it's just bad theology. People do not die because God needs them. Angels are created beings. They are not recycled humans. Don't get me going on rest and peace. Please. Especially when you know the person's not saved. 
Or how about this famous verse from Hezekiah 6.10? You've probably heard it. Hezekiah 6.10 says this, Money is the root of all evil. Now first, there's no book Hezekiah, although that has been known to fool a few Christians at times. But that's not what the verse says. It sounds plausible. The verse actually comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and it says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or pains. The issue is the love of money. And the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, it seems it's this type of error that Jesus is correcting. An error not taught widely by the rabbis, but that had gained traction with the laity. You may have heard of this, and please don't put up your hand. The book, The Late Great Planet Earth, up into 2009, that book had sold 35 million copies, detailing the so-called events of the end times. Well, let me tell you this. It was very popular among Christians. But if you go to seminary, do not quote that book on any of your papers, at least not if you want to be taken seriously. It is bad theology. Dutch theologian William Hendrickson noted that such a misinterpretation was likely the reason that there was such a dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. So you're to love your fellow Jew, but as far as Gentiles go, they were dogs and they were never going to make it to heaven. Missing is the fact that the nation of Israel was to be a light to the other nations around them, a beacon of God's love. And that division that they created with the Gentiles went even further. It didn't stop just with Gentiles. Jews were quick to judge their cousins, the Samaritans, who they considered half-breeds. This was the result of a judgmental attitude. It was a result of pride, and the issue still exists to this very day. Where does it stop when you have a judgmental attitude? Who does it stop with? Who doesn't come underneath your judgment? See, identity politics has been around for a very long time. In Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees cooperated, but they didn't agree on much, and there was a a big rivalry that existed between the two of them. Then there were the Zealots. The Zealots despised the Sadducees because they cooperated with Rome. The Pharisees and the Zealots both despised publicans, Jews who took official positions with the Roman government. See, Israel was a fractured nation. Israel was a fractured nation that was occupied, and the oppressor was Rome. And Rome could be very cruel in their rule over the people. And it's to this context, it's in this setting that Jesus Christ says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yes, their big enemy lived among them. Their enemy walked among them, ruled over them. 
Here in Canada, we've been very fortunate. We've not dealt, as a nation, Canada has never dealt with a war on its own soil. For us, enemies are always somewhere else. As with the Jews, though, Jesus meant more than just the Romans. See, he was posing the question, what about those personal antagonists? See, our society has become very polarized over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Enemies take all kinds of different forms. Enemies are people who don't vote the same as you do politically. They don't have the right colored sign. COVID has revealed a great divide among people, in the church, outside the church. How about race? Race is dividing people like nothing I have ever experienced in my lifetime. And now, how about your view on abortion? In each case, one side tries to demonize the other to the best of their ability. And as Christians, we're demonized for holding on to things like a biblical sexual ethic. One man, one woman, and the union of marriage for life. We're ridiculed for suggesting that God created the world in six days. Even amongst ourselves, there are people that, would, that claim to be Christians that would ridicule you for that. And as I think about it, I think, well, wait a second. If your God is big enough to save you and guarantee your eternity, is your God not big enough to create the world that you live in? And you and I who call Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are told to love these people, to pray for those who ridicule you, to pray for those who would persecute you, will look down on you because of your faith. See, love here is the word agape. It's God's love for us. I'm not sure how the first century Jew ever missed this, that they were to love this way. I believe the error is the result of a couple of things. One, a lack of clear teaching. God actually did address the treatment of others, how we think of people who might be our enemies. And he told us we were to treat them with has said, loving kindness. And you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 23, and you can read it later, jot it down, but Exodus chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it you shall rescue it with him. And in verse 9, you must not oppress foreigners, non-Jewish people living amongst them. They weren't to oppress them. How did they miss it? I think the second issue in the Jewish mindset was they misinterpreted or misunderstood the meaning of neighbor. They had a limited understanding of when the word neighbor was used. And limiting that neighbor, it opened the door for them to not love them, to hate them, to to limit their love. But what God meant was loving your neighbor is more than loving those that are like you. 
It's more than loving those who can return love back to you. See, a proper definition of neighbor is the focal point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yes, those hated half-breed Samaritans who weren't taken into captivity in 722. They were left in the land, and as the Assyrians moved into the land themselves, they intermarried with each other. You recall the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10, and it starts in verse 30, and here's what it says. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest, so a Jewish priest comes along, and there's a Jewish man injured. A priest came along, but he saw that the man lying there, he saw the man lying there. He crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. I can't be bothered. I'm late. They need me at the temple. He's just not interested in helping. Next, a temple assistant walked over. This is maybe worse. The temple assistant walked over, which means he went towards him, looked at him lying there. He passed by on the other side. So he gets close enough to see what's wrong, but nope, can't be bothered. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I will pay you next time I am here. Now, which one of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. What a great parable. Love in action. We are to do We are to love and to do the same thing to all that God brings across our paths. My path, your path. There's no geographical boundaries. Why? Because in doing so, it gives us the opportunity to reflect his character to others. So as we show ourselves neighborly, we reflect God's love for all of mankind through our own actions. That's why it says this in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Look at the first part of 45 again. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Have you ever heard of the old proverbial saying, the apple or the acorn hasn't fallen far from the tree. You heard that? Everybody knows what that means, right? Oh, great. Okay. I've been here about a year now, and I've watched some of you fathers and sons and daughters and mothers, and I chose not to embarrass anybody. (laughs) Because in some cases, that apple has not fallen far from the tree in looks and in character. 
I spent a lot of time with my dad. And I spent a lot of time working with him. Matter of fact, Thanksgiving weekend. Went back from seminary. I thought, oh, good. It's before I was married. Got a weekend where I can do nothing. Get home. Hey, we're redoing a roof over at North American Factories. It's a flat roof. We should be able to do it in a couple of days. What? But I spent time with him. When people meet me or even when they talk on the phone, and my siblings will say this, man, you sound like dad. And I've had other people say, some of your mannerisms are really like your... My wife will say it to me too. But that's because I spent time with him. Maybe you do this. You're out for a walk, maybe in a park, maybe at the mall, and a family goes by. And you look at your spouse. I do this, Marjorie, all the time. Man, you know what they're going to look like in 30 years, don't you? Because they're this spitting image of each other. Well... Spend enough time with somebody and you begin to act and take on some of their characteristics. Spend enough time with your heavenly father and you should be able to and will begin to emulate who he is to those that are around you. You reflect his character. You reflect his love. This is true on the other side. Spend enough time with the father of this world. You get the picture, don't you? We're to reflect the love of our Father. And God shows love without discrimination. And he illustrates this with the benefits of the sun and the rain, meeting the needs of both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. His common grace is given freely to all, for all mankind to benefit from. Now, there's, there's no inference here regarding salvation. That's not what we're talking about. It's simply saying that the unrighteous participate in the blessings of God as do the righteous. Even with salvation, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The offer is given to all. And in Romans 5.8, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. If I can borrow a gambling term here, Jesus ups the ante in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors weren't well-liked. Come to think of it, tax collectors still aren't well-liked. We have a good friend. Actually, they were here one Sunday last year or earlier this year. He's a tax collector, and he gets teased about it. Um, But Matthew, or Levi, as he's called in the Gospel of Luke, he would be sensitive to this. He was a tax collector. And, And when Jesus called him to come and follow him, He quits his job, but what's the first thing he does? Anybody remember? He throws a party, and he invites all his friends. And who are his friends? Other tax collectors. And in Scripture, they're the only group named in attendance. In the ESV, it says tax collectors and sinners. If you want a more literal translation of that, 
tax collectors and absolute moral failures. That's what the word sinners means there. The New Living Translation does a very broad term with this, and it's legitimate, but in the NLT, they just refer to both groups at once, and they say, well, why the scum there? And that's where they felt believed of them. See, it's easy to love people who are like you. It's easy to love those that are around you. But that type of love, it doesn't say anything about you or your character. But loving your enemy, loving those that are different than you, well, that's something special. Jesus hits a little closer to home if that illustration doesn't move you. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The word brothers can be broadly translated. The CSB translates it as brothers or sisters. I think the NLT does a great job in helping us understand, and it uses the interpretation of friends, and that's legitimate. If you're just greeting people and loving towards your friends, those people that you hang around with, your relatives, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, what's so special about this? You're doing what everybody else does. But if, you're, if you love your enemy, then you're doing something different. And when I mean love, I mean putting their best interest ahead of yours. <clears throat> Let's define love biblically. If we're going to define love biblically, we need to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you can turn over there. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Wow. Patient. To exhibit internal and external control in difficult circumstances. To even be able to say, wait a second, I I just need to delay doing anything. That's the best response here. Just to put the brakes on. Kind, gentle, compassionate. Envy, the concept of not being jealous. Boast. Love doesn't crow about itself. Or an old saying, you don't toot your own horn or brag. Arrogant, it's not puffed up or inflated with pride. Love is not rude. I used to tell this to our girls in 6 to 8 and our guys all the time in the, in the junior high. Love is not rude. It doesn't behave in an unbecoming manner. Here's an old-fashioned word for you. It's not boorish. It's, it doesn't handle itself improperly. It's not dishonorable or indecent. Love doesn't insist. It, it isn't self-seeking, looking out for number one. Love isn't irritable. It isn't provoked easily and angered. In the ESV, resentful, I I think the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, does a better job on this when it records it as, but does not keep a record of wrongs. doesn't have a list of, oh, that's how many times they've offended me. 
wrongdoing, injustice, inequity, falsehood, deceitfulness. And the verse goes on with other characteristics. Love rejoices in the truth, which is great. This is a great, when you read this and understand what they mean by truth, it's wonderful. Truthfulness, when it talks about truth, it's talking about truthfulness that corresponds with reality. Just think of where we live in the context of our world today and what's being pushed on our children. It rejoices in truthfulness, and that truthfulness is connected to reality. It bears, means, meaning that it puts up with. Sometimes we have to bear in love and put up with stuff. It believes and hopes and endures to stand firm. That is how we are called to love our enemies, and that is not easy. I'm not talking about being gullible. I'm not talking about closing your eyes to sin. But I don't understand for the life of me how we can love our enemies and then walk out with signs and say, God hates. God hates people shacking up with one another. God hates homosexuality and we march. I do not see how that serves any purpose. And if you want to look at Scripture... It's not correct. God never says that. Now, I'm not saying that God does not say that those characteristics or those um, behaviors are sinful. He does. He's quite clear that both those behaviors are sinful. But if we wanted to be more accurate with our signage and what we find in Scripture, it would be more accurate to hold signs from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, so prideful eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Can you imagine a church group holding up the last one? You know what it says? God hates one who sows discord among brothers. Besides, the sign such as God hates does a disservice to our Lord and it does a disservice to the church. And it serves no purpose for engaging that person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no purpose. How can you lead someone to the Lord and share his love and kindness? Those who would deem themselves our enemies, we are to love them, even if they're disagreeable with us. And I'm not saying it's easy, but think about it. How do you react when someone in your neighborhood puts up a different political sign and you disagree with it? How do you continue your friendship? And how do you care for a couple that move across the street from you that doesn't adhere to a biblical concept of gender or sexuality, or perhaps both? What do you do if you gain a neighbor who worships a false god? What about a co-worker who gets under your skin and irritates you and does everything they can so that you don't get a promotion? Well, we can begin by showing love, by praying for them. Do you pray for those who get under your skin? Those who have different values than you? That's a start. 
I worked with a guy. He was very antagonistic towards Christians. Very antagonistic. Worked with him at Purolator Courier. And we had to sort mail for three to four hours together every night. And he really didn't like me because I was at seminary. After a couple of years, I thought, this, i got to change this somehow. I found out what his favorite cookies were and muffins. So every once in a while, I started baking them in the afternoon in between shifts. And I, we started earlier than everybody else, so I would take them in. And I'm not going to promise you that it's going to happen every time, but something changed in his character. It wasn't perfect, but as I showed love and care and concern for him, it was a lot better. See, he had only known judgmental, harsh, critical believers all his life. What's ironic is he actually married a minister's daughter. They meant in university, he was an agnostic, and he had only been treated poorly by Christians that he knew. I also cringe when I see in our world and I watch and they talk about unconditional love. I've noticed something. That unconditional love they talk about often has strings attached to it. And when they help people, they're helping people out of an agenda or, or they're trying to build some sort of narrative by what they're doing. It's not everybody, but I see it a lot. To love like God, we must be free of that. Yes, we want to share Jesus Christ with those that we love. We would love to see them come to faith in Christ and turn their lives around. But what do you do with the neighbor that rejects Christ outright? Do you stop loving them? Do you cut off contact? Because if that's what you do, then what's the neighbor see? The neighbor sees, oh, I get it. I was just their church project. And Christians have been guilty of this. People are not just our projects. They are made in the image of God, and we are commanded to love them. Even if they reject Christ, we still need. You don't know what will happen 10, 15, 20 years down the road, or even at your funeral, that they might come to faith. You just don't know that. We're to love that way because that's how God loves his love is to the unjust and to the just. And this is hard. And it's hard because, you know what? Some people are just hard to love. I like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbors, or we can insert enemy in there. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you find yourself disliking him less. I acknowledge that it's even harder in times of unrest and war. But Jesus puts on no disclaimers. He tells us to love our enemy. That was what Corey Ten Boom faced with this former cruel guard 
that we left her with, and he's standing there with his hand out. Here's just the last little bit of the interview. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message of God forgives, forgives, the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. Jesus, help me, she prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the outstretched one in front of me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into my joint, into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. She said, I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. Verse 48 is our final verse for this section, and it says this, You therefore must be perfect, or that word can mean mature or complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect. After all, Jesus, who knew no sin, was willing to go to the cross for us and died for us, and our sins put him there. It was us that put Christ on the cross. He gives us the example to forgive He has shown us his willingness to forgive, and he went as far as the cross. And if we want to follow in his footsteps and be mature and complete, we need to do the same thing with those around us, and that's to forgive them. His grace is for all mankind, including us and including our enemies. So how should we act towards our enemies? I think Romans 12 starting at verse 19, is a great verse to end off with. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, with, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, just a clarification there. So no one's going away thinking this. When it talks about heaping burning coals on his head, we don't want you to have the image that every time you do something nice for them, there's this little angel dumping hot coals on your antagonistic friend's head. What it's talking about is this. That as you do good and as you turn the other cheek and you're willing to go the extra mile, that God will begin to work in their heart. And maybe they don't get saved, but they begin to feel ashamed for how they treated you. And you're going to let God do that, not yourself. And again, will it happen every time? No, but we're commanded to do that and leave it with the Lord. Marjorie, and I didn't ask her permission to this, but I'm going to go with it. 
It's not about her. It's about what happened. She had somebody at work, and we went through this as a couple and prayed over it, that really tried to get her fired. And we were fortunate that we had a a good friend in HR that coached through with us, and we did a lot of prayer with this. And when it was all said and done, that lady could not ever look Marjorie in the eyes again. She'd always go by her like this. There was a sense we felt of shame for what she had done. And on the last day of her employment, as that lady was leaving that place of employment, Marjorie wished her the best. And and Marjorie said the face was just like, why would you do that after everything I did to you and put you through? So we do good to those that are around us and to those that may be our enemies. We show them the love of God and we leave any vengeance with the Lord. So we don't have images of burning coals on their head. We have images of the Lord will take care of this. I'm going to do my part and show love and forgiveness. And we allow God to work in their heart whether it's they feel embarrassed afterwards or come to realize their mistakes, or whether the Lord uses that experience to draw that person to himself that they might have a relationship with him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, Father, for the challenges of it. And it is not easy loving neighbors that get it on our skin or co-workers It's not easy to love those that might seek to do harm. It's especially not easy to those that might walk in our land and occupy it. Father, help us to understand and give us the strength to love those, to love those who might have a a different sexual ethic than what Scripture teaches, to love those that might be antagonistic or downright hostile towards the Christian faith or to us personally. Father, in our actions, we will allow you to take vengeance and for us to continue to love that we might emulate, that we might show your characteristic of how you have loved the world around you, around us, and continue to do so. We thank you for this time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.